I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the end of the book of Philippians. And that can be found um, printed in your bulletin on page 7. It's also on page 982 in, a, in the pew Bibles that are on the back of the pew in front of you. We'll be finishing out um, this book together today. And last week we saw how Paul's contentment in Christ enabled him to receive help from the Philippians. And he saw their gift of financial support and um, giving to his material needs. He saw their gift in this bigger context of their care and of God's provision and of Christ's empowerment in his life. And then this week, as he closes out the book, and, and for me it's just fascinating that this is how he ends a letter to them, the, the weight and significance of this. As he closes out the book, his thanksgiving continues. And really what Paul lays out for us is a theology of giving. What is really taking place when we're giving to one another uh, as we each have need. And as we mentioned last week, giving and receiving in the body of Christ and in life in general can be a complicated thing, can't it? Our social conventions about what you need to do in return when someone gives you a gift or what it means about your relationship if someone gave you something or didn't give you something or if someone helped you in your need or uh, wasn't there to help you in your need. And it can stir up things in our own hearts, this giving and this receiving, our, our insecurities as we put ourselves out there to give to others or our insecurities as we receive help from another. And we have a temptation to focus on what giving or receiving says about us, and that can trip us up many times. But one of the things that I find so beautiful as Paul closes out this letter is in this section, it's not corrective for the Philippians. He's not addressing a problem directly. They are a church that is demonstrating that they have this Christ-like giving in how they've given to him. And so what he's doing is just reminding them and filling out for them all that God is doing as they've been faithful in giving. And as I think of us here at GBC and as I think of this last year and being together now, I, I think giving and receiving is something that happens at GBC. It's something that is vibrantly a part of our church. And we've seen over this last year and over the history of this church of 31 years, people who sacrificially give to one another as the body cares for itself. And so my prayer this morning is that we would all be encouraged as we look at what Paul says, that we'd be encouraged about the wonder of what God is doing even through such seemingly mundane and insignificant things as giving money or help or a listening ear or serving behind the scenes. And that would free us up from these temptations that may get us bogged down as we attach strings to our giving and receiving with one another. So with that in mind, let's hear how Paul finishes out this letter. And I'm going to read uh, what we looked at last week as well, the, the context starting there in verse 10. And I'll read to the end of Philippians chapter 4. So Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. Here's God's word this morning. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray and ask God's help as we consider his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word and we thank you for how it opens our hearts and our minds to see the wonder of what you are doing and what you are doing through such simple and ordinary things. We pray that you would help us to see the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit this morning would illumine our hearts to understand these things. Give us attention and clarity and focus. We confess that we are weak and needy, and we need you to strengthen our faith as we hear your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul speaks of giving and receiving in the Lord, there is so much more going on than what we normally think of on really a horizontal level where you have a giver and a receiver. And what we'll see this morning uh, is that we give for partnership, we give for profit, and we also give as priestly service. So we'll consider those three things this morning. But notice, first of all, how Paul speaks of giving for partnership. And he really does this in the beginning section of what he says in verses 14 to 16. Paul begins by saying, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. This phrase, it was kind of you, is really a way of affirming, well done, you did a great thing in sharing in my trouble. And and so we zoom back for a moment and think, what is it that they did that was so great? Well, he says two things about it. You shared in my trouble and you partnered with me in giving and receiving. That's really what they did. And he reminds them of this by bringing them up to speed of of some of the history that they knew. Did you notice there how he piles on these phrases, you Philippians yourselves know. He keeps these you things uh, going on. And, And what that's doing is it's affectionately speaking of, hey, remember these memories that we have together? That's really what he does is he he brings this out. And he says, in the beginning of the gospel, which is another way of saying when you came to faith in the gospel, when you began as Christians there in Philippi, they were the only church that entered into partnership with Paul uh, financially in particular. 
And then he goes on to say that when he went to Thessalonica, they sent him financial help more than once. They sent gifts to him. We know that later, when he left Macedonia, he went to Corinth. And there again, he says they supplied his need. And we know from what he says to the church at Corinth that they supplied his needs so that he would not be a burden to the Corinthians in any way. And so this church at Philippi, which we know also from the book of Corinthians, the Philippi is in Macedonia, and the Macedonian churches were by and large very poor churches. It's not like this is some wealthy congregation that's just shelling out money to Paul, but they, out of their poverty, are meeting his needs. And now, he says, they have done it again. Epaphroditus brought their gifts, and he says that he is well supplied because of what they have given him. Think about that for a moment. He's there under house arrest saying, you know what, because of your gifts, I'm actually in abundance right now, is what he says to them. And, and what he's conveying here is this long history they have of partnership where they had give, have given to him. And he's saying to them, I remember each and every time you helped me. And what was it about this partnership, this relationship with the Philippians, that made it so meaningful to him? Well, there are two things we see in this section about their partnership. And it teaches us about partnering together in the gospel as brothers and sisters. The first is that partnership is sharing in another's struggles. Partnership is sharing in another's struggles. For Paul, their partnership was far more than just the gifts that arrived with Epaphroditus. He saw, as we saw back uh, last week in, in verse 10, he saw their giving of the gift as a blossoming, a coming to fruition, a reviving of the concern that they have had for him all along. And now they have opportunity and it expresses itself financially. And here he says that they were partners with or that they shared with him in his trouble. Sharing with means they sympathized, they felt what he was going through in his struggles in the gospel. And he says in particular they sympathized with his trouble. That phrase there, trouble, is the same term that he's used to speak of his imprisonment. And also when he spoke of those who preach Christ out of rivalry in order to afflict or to trouble him. And so it seems like what Paul is speaking about is they have sympathized with him in what he's going through circumstantially and how that's affecting him internally as well. And so you see, for Paul, their partnership was about far more than just writing a check or far more than just these gifts arriving with Epaphroditus. Their partnership was rooted in the care that was behind that gift. Some of us were able to see this illustrated last Sunday. Uh, the missions committee set up a Zoom meeting with Rob and Joy Weaver, our partners in missions in Morrison, Ontario. They minister there to First Nation people. And on that Zoom, they were able to tell us how this last year and how these six years of ministry have been for them there in Morrison. And as we heard what they were saying and just were able to sympathize with the difficulties of a dark place and um, many difficult times and, and very much a fruitless feeling time, um, we were able to care for them. And at the end of our time together, Joy said to us, thank you. Thank you for caring 
about what we're doing. And it was amazing just to hear how much it meant. Sure, we give some financially. They're a, they're a partner with us in missions. But our care and entering into their struggle ministered so much to their hearts. And you see, brothers and sisters, we may not always be in a position to give of material things, but we are always in a position to partner with one another in the gospel because we can share in each other's struggles. And it doesn't just benefit the person who's struggling, but sharing in that benefits us as well, and we'll talk about that more. But, but even since last Sunday, I'm amazed how much Rob and Joy have been going through my head and how many more times I've prayed for them this week and how much hearing about their faithfulness with the gospel has helped me think about what does it mean to be faithful and gospel witness here. And so there's so much benefit as we partner together in one another's struggles. So partnership is about more than just the gift. It's about sharing in each other's struggles. And then secondly, partnership is also giving and receiving. Partnership is giving and receiving. In verse 15, he says, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. Now, if we think about that for a moment, it's clear how the Philippians are partners in giving. They've repeatedly sent him money, right? But how are they partners in receiving? Well, they have received the gospel and gospel ministry in this letter itself from Paul. And so gospel partnership, as Paul understands it, is not where you must give back the same thing that's given to you. But instead, um, what you are able to give may not be money, but it is also needed. And so it's not that we give and receive the same things. It's, it's really another way of saying what Paul says elsewhere, that we're one body with many parts, right? But each part is needed. And how is each part needed? Each part is needed for what it gives, and each part is also needed for what it needs and for what it receives from the body. And so Paul views their expression of this gift as Intimate gospel partnership that's more than just the gift. It's sharing in his struggles. And it's more than just giving, but it's also receiving and giving from one another according to each one's giftedness and ability. And haven't we seen that so much this past year? This past year, we realized needs that we never knew that we even had. I never thought we would have to plan how to have church outside for a while. (laughs) I didn't even know where to begin. And we didn't know what it would be like to be on Zoom so many times or to have restrictions on how we're able to see each other and have to think creatively and then find out um, different people's convictions and preferences and, and work through all of those things. But we've seen throughout this last year how the body works together in giving and receiving in all the ways that the church needs. And we're growing and learning to see one another, not just as beloved brothers and sisters, which is an amazing thing in Christ, but also as partners together in the gospel, a reciprocal partnership of giving and receiving. And so Paul sees giving, uh, contented giving, as towards this partnership. But then he also says that contented giving is for profit. It's a for-profit endeavor, 
which I must admit, I think sounds very strange to be talking about in church, but we need to see what Paul means because it's a really beautiful thing that I think is different than how we normally think of prophet. He explains this in verses 17 to 20. And so let me read them again uh, just so we can have them fresh in our minds as he unpacks this. He says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So one of the things that we see there is that in this entire section, Paul goes out of his way to make sure that they don't think he's thanking them just because he wants more money. Have you ever wondered that? You get a thank you for a gift and you're just wondering, are they just wanting more (laughs) of that gift? Well, Paul's very aware of that dynamic. And so he says, not that I seek the gift in verse 17. And we saw last week in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of my being in need. This isn't about me trying to get more from you. But instead, he tells them what he seeks or what he sets his heart on or what he is striving for. And the answer is surprising. He's striving for their profit. But it's a profit that works according to kingdom economics, which are very different than the economics we may have sat through in high school. And so there are three things about kingdom economics. I'm going to try, as someone who's not great with money or economics, to keep this from being too dry. Maybe some of you are really excited and hope that I'm going to pass out a spreadsheet or something. Um, But I just want to give these three categories so we can see how Paul views the kingdom economy that giving and receiving happens in. And so the first thing that he speaks of is the giver's gain. The giver's gain. He says in verse 17, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this can sound confusing to us, right? And part of the reason it's confusing is he's mixing metaphors. He's talking about fruit and agricultural things. And then he says, increases to your credit, which is accounting language. And so this, let's take it bit by bit. This phrase, increasing to your credit, really carries the idea of gaining interest, You invest money and it increases, it keeps growing because of interest and you have credit, you have gain in your account as that money gains interest. But he also speaks of it as fruit and that also picks up on this imagery of profit and gain. So think about it agriculturally. You plant seeds or crops and the harvest keeps growing over time and it keeps on increasing. And so Paul says that what he seeks most is not getting money from them, but that their balance increases as they supply his needs. In their giving to him, their heavenly account grows. It gains interest and it becomes more fruitful. And Paul is all about them growing in their fruitfulness. Well, let's just pause for a minute and say, how does this work that we give and somehow we gain heavenly credit of some sort? Well, as with any spiritual benefit, it comes to us in this age as both already 
and not yet. And so first of all, there's a not yet aspect to this fruitful gain that we have in giving. You may remember that earlier in chapter 1, Paul had prayed that on the day of Christ, what would happen? The Philippians would be, in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Hear that fruit language again? And they're overflowing with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so part of what Paul is saying is that in Christ-like giving, it is resulting in eternal fruit an eternal harvest that will only be fully experienced and fully seen on the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. But there's an already aspect to it as well. That fruit is experienced even now as heavenly fruit increases in our lives as we give in a Christ-like way. When we live more like Christ by sacrificially giving to and serving one another, we experience presently the enriching benefits of becoming more like Christ. It is truly more blessed to give than to receive. And why is that? Because we're sharing in what God does as being those who are self-giving. And we heard this in Jesus' words in our scripture reading. Jesus said that those who sacrifice now in this life receive many times more in this time. That's the already. We're receiving benefit even now. And in the age to come, eternal life. That's the not yet of the fullness of receiving this heavenly reward. And so all that to say, in kingdom economics, the giver gains. Our giving now results in eternal fruit, which we enjoy even now, but we'll see the fullness of on the day of Christ Jesus. And so the giver gains, but also in kingdom economics, the receiver gains as well. The receiver's reward is the second thing to know about this profit um, arrangement in the heavenly kingdom. The receiver's reward. Paul benefits materially from receiving their gift, right? They, they bring gifts to him through Epaphroditus, and he says, I am now well supplied. But that's not what he's seeking as the receiver. He's actually seeking their profit. Why? Because their profit is actually his gain as well. Because what has Paul said about the Philippians? That they are his joy and his crown. And what that means is, because of their partnership together in the gospel and because of his relationship with them, their presence one day with him in glory will be a part of his heavenly reward. His heavenly crown is in part, and it's metaphorical, is the Philippians themselves. And so think about this. As the Philippians give to Paul, what happens? They grow in heavenly credit in some way, heavenly reward. And if they are actually his reward, what does that mean? His reward's actually greater. Metaphorically, his crown is getting heavier in a sense. I don't know if it's heavier, more jewels, whatever it might be. It's a metaphor for us to understand that the receiver grows and and gains and benefits as well as the other person is becoming more like Christ in the giving. And so it's this amazing um, situation that's happening. 
the giver benefits and the receiver benefits. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, this all sounds a bit self-serving, doesn't it? We could just kind of team together and be like, hey, if you give me, then you win, I win, and I'll give back, and like, we just, we win. And it's, it's this, um, yeah, it just could get twisted, right? Self-focusedly twisted in some ways. But there's one more aspect about this that changes everything, and that's the supplier's glory. We have the giver's gain, the receiver's reward, and then the supplier's glory. When we normally think of being in need, whether that's materially or relationally, we usually think of two participants, right? You have the giver and you have the receiver. But kingdom economics are radically different because of the divine supplier. There's another character involved, and it's God himself. And what Paul says there in verse 19 is, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things that we talked about last week is that within Paul's context there at Philippi, him receiving a financial gift would socially put him in a situation where he's expected to return a gift. And remember the contest of benefits language? For the relationship to continue well, he should actually give a bigger gift than what he received to show how much he appreciates that. But Paul, under house arrest, is in no position to give a financial gift back to them, much less a bigger financial gift. And so if Paul's unable to repay the gift, how is it going to happen? My God will supply every need of yours. He sees the repayment of their gift, not from as coming from him, but from God himself. And he's convinced that God will meet all of their needs just as he has met all of his needs. And that's why he says, my God will do this. I've seen him do it. He's met every need and I'm content, whether well-fed or hungry, in abundance and in need. And he will do the same for you. Do you realize how this changes everything? Our giving and our receiving, our our meeting of each other's needs isn't bound by our own limited resources of time or money or counsel or help. But the true supplier is God himself. And so we know that he can do far more with the little that we're able to give than we in and of ourselves could do. And since the true supplier is God himself, it it frees us up to give sacrificially because we know that God will supply our needs and it enables us to receive freely because we know that God will repay the giver and it's not up to us to make sure the score gets settled. And it keeps us from being self-focused in this whole process. Did you notice how seamlessly Paul moves from speaking of these economic things into a doxology, uh, which is theological words for giving praise to God. He goes right into verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Why does he burst into doxology when talking about giving and receiving? Because God is the one who receives glory in all of this. He enabled the Philippians to give, and he's the, ones who, he's the one who will repay them for their gift. 
and their gift is going to gain interest in their heavenly account. And that benefits Paul as Paul's benefited by what God has given him through the Philippians. And God receives the glory because he's the one from whom all this has come and to whom all praise is due because he's the divine supplier behind all of it. And so it just shows forth the glory and the care of God as our heavenly supplier as he works in us by his grace. So that's the best I could do at a short heavenly economics lesson out of this brief section with Paul. But I want to pause for a minute there and we can put our um, spreadsheets aside and ask the question, what difference does this way of seeing what God is doing, what difference does it make in our lives? And the reality is what it does is it frees us up for contented giving. It frees us up to give contently. What are some of the things that trip us up in giving? As I think about it, we're often tempted to one of two things. One is we may be tempted to overgive when we lose sight of kingdom economics. We may be tempted to overgive. We think of giving our time or our money to a particular need and situation. And, but if we lose sight of kingdom economics, we think that that entire need needs to somehow be met by what we have to give. And we lose sight of the divine supplier. And so we may not be, why asking, we may not be asking ourselves, what can I wisely give to this need that may help part of that need as we look to God to do the ultimate supplying. And we may throw ourselves in giving more than is truly wise or thinking that it's up to us to supply the entire need when in reality we've lost sight of what God is really doing. And so we can be tempted to overgive of ourselves in an unwise way, but we can also be tempted to undergive, right? We can see a need and we can ask ourselves, will it really be worth it to get involved with this? Is it really the best use of my money? Is it it's going to be a lot of work? Is this really something that I want to enter into? But when we see all the benefits of giving, the heavenly reward and the Christ-like growth and divine repayment, when we see that, we can give sacrificially to the needs around us because we know the divine supplier will be ministering to us as well. We still ask the question, what can I wisely give? But it's also followed up by another question, what can I sacrificially give? So it takes a lot of the pressure off of giving because we see God at work. It also takes pressure off of receiving, doesn't it? It can feel weird to receive help, whether that's financial help, whether that's relational help. But when we realize that God is at work meeting our need and God is repaying and blessing the person who is giving to us, it frees us up to receive it with thanksgiving, doesn't it? And not feel all this pressure to have to somehow reciprocate in a way we may not be able to do at the moment, but will be able to do within the context of the body of Christ. So when I hear that, I really think, can it really be this good? (laughs) Can economics ever really work this way where everybody wins in giving and receiving? The answer is yes. Because heaven's abundance has broken in upon us through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul sees. And that shapes how he gives and receives. 
But Paul doesn't just speak of this in kind of economic giving and receiving terms. He also speaks of it in a very relational way. He speaks of it as priestly service. And that's our final point this morning. Not only giving for profit and giving for partnership, but also giving as priestly service. You know, lest we be tempted to think of giving and receiving strictly in terms of columns of profit and loss, Paul shows us that all of this takes place within the context of a relationship with God. And the way he does that, it just like slips in, but you see how much it permeates his thinking in verse 18. When Paul finally specifically mentions the gifts they gave to Epaphroditus, he uses sacrificial language. He says that that gift was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the second time he's used this priestly language. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, he spoke of when Epaphroditus came to them and he called that their priestly ministry to his need. That word priestly isn't in our English translations, but he uses the same word as priestly service to speak of what Epaphroditus did in bringing that gift. Now, when we think of the priesthood, when we think of sacrifices, various aspects of that may come to mind. We might think of atonement, offering sacrifices, mediating between God and the people. All of those things are true aspects of what it meant to be a priest in the Old Testament. But what Paul is getting at here is this aspect of priestly ministry that is pleasing service in the presence of God. It's pleasing service in the presence of God. Think for a moment just how we see this unpacked in the scriptures. Do you realize that the Bible clearly shows that we were all created for priestly work? Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. And what were they to do? They were to serve in the very presence of God as his image bearers. But Adam failed and he was driven out of God's temple presence. And and so then we come to the Old Testament temple system and the same terms that were used for Adam, keep and to guard the garden, are now used for the priests, keep and guard the temple, showing a parallel between what's going on there. And the priests were to serve in God's presence and to offer pleasing sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But the priests failed, the people failed, But Jesus left the glory of heaven and came as a lowly servant and he offered himself for us. And he did so as the perfect high priest and he did so as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And Ephesians says that his giving of his life on the cross was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He offered the pleasing sacrifice So that now, by faith in his perfect sacrifice, we are all now brought into God's presence as his royal priests. And do you know how the Bible ends? One day, the entire cosmos will be the temple of God. New heavens, new earth, temple everywhere. And who? what becomes of the people who trusted in Christ? We are a kingdom of royal priests to serve before him in his presence forever. That's what we were made for, and that's what through Christ we will one day partake of in its fullness. But what does this have to do with giving? 
Paul says that their gift was a pleasing aroma to God. What does that mean? It means that our heavenly priestly service before the presence of God has begun even now and is happening in the most mundane and menial things like helping someone who's in need. And just as Old Testament sacrifices, if you think about them, they weren't perfect in and of themselves, were they? But what made them pleasing to God? Faith in the coming Christ whose sacrifice would pay for all the sins that were being overlooked until that time. And so also, our giving to one another in need isn't perfect now, is it? The closer we grow, or the closer we come to God and grow in our walk with Christ, the more we see our mixed motives and the more we realize how messy it is trying to help others in their need. But you know what? When that's done in faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, knowing that through him, God is at work supplying all of our needs, what goes up in those menial tasks? A fragrant offering that's pleasing to God because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are partners together in the gospel work, and we are royal priests together, who through our giving and receiving are showing worshipful sacrifice before a watching world. And we do so under the smiling face of God. And what happens as we do this? Other people see it, don't they? Notice as we close how Paul finishes his letter in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul closes with this beautiful display of unity, doesn't he? Make sure everyone receives our greetings in Christ Jesus. My whole team sends their greetings, even though some of them haven't even met you, but we pray for you. And all the believers here greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. What would that do to the Philippians to hear that through their partnership in ministry with Paul, what is happening? Even those in Caesar's household have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to them and a reminder to us as well that as we pursue this contented giving and receiving, we shine like stars to those who need to see. And God's temple presence grows even in the most unlikely places. It's not easy. It's full of difficulties and sufferings. But notice how Paul closes. We can know that in all of it, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us in our spirit, the most inmost part of who we are by the very spirit of Christ himself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your temple presence would grow in this earth. We pray that you would help us to worshipfully give and receive as your people as we partner together in this gospel work And may we do so all by the grace that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.